Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. You believe that, church? He has no rival, no equal, that his name is above every other name. Would you join me in praying to this great God? Lord, we we magnify you today. We bless your name today. We delight in your goodness and in the promise that you have conquered the grave and that those who are in you are victorious Lord, help us uh, lean into that truth through your word today. God, sharpen us. Help us to depart more like Christ than when we entered, more resolute in walking after Jesus no matter what storms may come. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, we continue through the book of Acts today in a message that I am titling Trouble and Triumph in the Jerusalem Church. Trouble and Triumph in the Jerusalem Church. In his commentary on the book of Acts, Tony Merida makes this observation. Rivals exist everywhere. In politics, it's Democrats versus Republicans. In computers, it's Mac versus the PC. In Roanoke, Virginia, it's the Hokies versus the Who's. That wasn't in his commentary. That's just bonus material. And in the home, he says, it's kids versus the vegetables. And then he writes this. And in the kingdom of God, it's the kingdom of darkness opposing the kingdom of God's beloved son. Church, as those who are witnesses to Christ, as those who bear God's word in this world, in a world that has turned against its creator, I want to remind you that you are in a battle. Were you aware of that this morning? That's why we sing that he has no rival, he has no equal. That's important for us to know because as we're going to see in the text today, we still face opposition in this world until our king returns. But I have good news. In this rivalry, the teams are not even close to evenly matched. In Acts 12, that is what Luke is going to show us by highlighting the reality of our present trouble on the one hand and the certainty of the triumph of God's word on the other. Before he shows us, beginning in Acts 13, this pattern of suffering and yet the advance of the gospel as the mission of God extends to Gentiles all over the globe. Before he shows us that pattern out there, he's going to show us that pattern in the Jerusalem church. It's right there as well. God, God is not only winning when all seems like it's okay. The definition of God's triumph and his advance is not determined by our circumstances. We share in his victory even in seasons of great trouble if we belong to King Jesus. Would you hear with me 
the first five verses of verse 12, excuse me, the first five verses of chapter 12, about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. I want to show you a simple concept in these first five verses. We need to understand that the world wants to cancel Jesus and Jesus' people. There's a whole cancel culture that's out there today, and people want to cancel this movement or that group, but at the end of the day, if you belong to Jesus, the world wants to cancel you, and they want to cancel Jesus. That pattern has been around since the promise that a Savior would come. Satan has been attacking it and opposing it, and he's going to oppose it until Christ returns. In verse 1, we learn that sometime around when Antioch, the Antioch church, had prepared this offering to send back to the Jerusalem church, that Herod executed James, the brother of John, one of the twelve apostles, with the sword. This means that he was decapitated. Execution with the sword in Greco-Roman culture is a nice way of saying he cut his head off. Luke's description of his execution is swift. We, don't, we aren't given the charges. We aren't given the details. All we know is that opposition to the gospel and the people of God is once more increasing in Jerusalem. It's not the first time we've seen opposition in Jerusalem. It started with the temple leadership, right, opposing the apostles, and then it spread to more Jews as Stephen began to spread the gospel among Hellenist Jews, and more of the Jewish people in Jerusalem began to oppose the spread of the gospel, and now it's moved even to the appointed Roman ruler over all of Judea who represents an alliance between Jewish people and Rome against God's people. Can you think just a decade or so before about an alliance between Rome and Jews that was opposed to someone who wanted to do something to glorify God whose name was Jesus. It's happening all over again. They tried to crucify and cancel Jesus, but he rose from the grave on the third day and he commissioned a church. And so now they're trying to take out the church just like they tried to take out Jesus. Jerusalem has become to God's people like Egypt was to the descendants of Jacob. They are seeking to break their will to to thrive as a holy people living for King Jesus. And Ethan has already challenged our graduates today that they're going to face this adversity. They're going to face this opposition. The world will want to take them out. And what we pray for them and long for them is that they would endeavor to remain distinct in their love for Christ no matter what they face. You see, here in Jerusalem, the opposition to the church did not work. We see in James, who is executed, that there are some Christians willing to pay the ultimate price for their devotion to King Jesus. Francis Chan wrote this in Crazy Love, Jesus wants all or nothing. 
the thought of a person calling himself a Christian without being a devoted follower of Christ is absurd. James gives me hope, by the way, because this is the same James who, when he was walking around with Jesus before Jesus was crucified, do you remember what he said to Jesus? He went up to him with his brother and he says, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And then they're debating about who gets to be on the right hand or the left hand in glory. He, he thinks this coming of Jesus is all about him, and he misunderstands that Jesus came to make him new so that he would glorify Christ. He's, he's inverted the whole gospel, and yet in seeing and beholding the resurrected Christ, walking him with him for 40 days after the resurrection, James had come to learn the joy Not of asking Jesus to do for him whatever he wanted, but instead of doing whatever Jesus might ask of him. His life had become the mantra of one who had come before him, John the Baptist. I want to decrease so that Jesus might increase. And you know what happened to John the Baptist? He lost his head to a man named Herod. Once more, we see the pattern repeated in the church. There's a lot of Herods in the Bible. Tony Marita summarizes them in this way. He says, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar with the name Herod, but it's easy to get the Herods confused. This dynasty was notorious for attacking God's people. They ruled Judea with with their delegated power from Rome. And, And this Herod that we're reading about, his grandfather was Herod the Great, who was responsible for slaughtering the babies when the Magi visited Jesus. Matthew chapter 2. Herod Antipas, a younger son of Herod the Great, an uncle of the Herod that we're reading about now, was the one who had arrested John the Baptist and had him beheaded, and then later was the one who conspired to have Jesus killed. When you read the name Herod, you're thinking, bad news for God's people. It's like reading the name Pharaoh in the Old Testament. These various Herods indeed function a bit like Pharaoh in the Exodus. They're willing to tolerate God's people as long as they are useful for their own ends. But as soon as it's not comfortable to have Christians around, they'll just kill them. In verse 3, when Herod perceives that killing James helps his standing in the polls, what does he do? He's like, I'm going to kill Peter too. But since it is the season of Passover, including the days of unleavened bread that follow right after Passover... Herod has Peter arrested and imprisoned with the plans to bring him out to the people when the festivities conclude. This term to bring out is a a technical term. To bring out to do what? To publicly execute him. Can, Can you think of another Jew who endeavored to follow the father wholeheartedly who was brought out for a public execution at the time of Passover. If you see the pattern of Jesus repeated in the church, that's not accidental. Luke is intentional in this. He's saying, look, if you follow Christ, if you love Jesus in a world that is against him, don't be surprised that the world's going to treat you like they treated Jesus. But don't forget, Jesus wins. For three days, the world thought they were winning, but Jesus wins through the resurrection. 
Nevertheless, the world keeps fighting him by oppressing his people, the church, because his people have the gospel, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation by which more people encounter King Jesus in love and surrender to him. Herod senses that the stakes are great. So what does he do? He takes extreme measures to protect Peter until it's time for him to be slaughtered. Four squads of soldiers for one prisoner. Now a squad would have had four men in it. So 16 soldiers to guard one prisoner seems a little excessive, don't you think? There would have been probably four, these four squads would have monitored the four night watches, Peterson tells us, and they would have made sure that Peter could not escape. And at this point, If you're like, man, that's extreme, that's excessive, it is. And the reason Luke is telling us this is because he wants us to feel what it feels like when when it seems like we have no hope. When it seems like the, the cards are stacked against us. He wants to train us to understand, get this church, this is important, our feelings of hopelessness do not trump the hope that flows from a God who cannot lose. Let me say that again. I I don't know what you brought into this room this morning. I don't know what trouble and adversity you're facing in your workplace, in your career path, in your family. I don't know where the pressure points are in your life, but Jesus does, and he wants to remind you through God's word today, your feelings of hopelessness do not trump the hope that flows from a God who can't lose. You belong to this God? He, he wants, Luke wants Herod's excessive precautions to amplify our anticipation of what our holy, almighty God is going to do. Yes, it seems hopeless, but don't forget, it's Passover time. And what happens at Passover time? God frees his people. He freed them in Egypt, he freed them at the cross, and he's about to free them again Will the world stop the gospel and enslave the church all over again? Or will God Almighty in the nick of time deliver as he always does? Would you read with me verses 6 through 17? Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold... An angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Verse 12, when he had realized this, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where there were, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he had 
knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy. She did not open the gate, she forgot to open the door, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she insisted that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. There's a lot in here. And unfortunately, we don't have Wednesday night coming up this week. Because I would love to have the sermon discussion group. But I'm going to give you just the low-hanging fruit out of this text. It's this. And it's so simple that we forget it. It's so simple that we don't implement it in our lives. And so I think we need to be reminded of it. You ready? One sentence. We can rest and pray knowing Jesus wins. That's simple. I don't know what you're faced with in your kid's life, in your marriage, what, what the pressure points are, but you can rest. If you belong to Christ, you can rest and you can pray knowing Jesus wins. He wins. In verse 6, Luke shows us just how bleak the situation is. I don't know what situation you're facing, but I don't think it's any more bleak than Peter's situation. On the very night that Peter is rescued, Herod is about to kill him. On the night he's going to bring him out for public execution, that's the night that God delivers. Doesn't God do that sometimes in our lives? Like the very last minute. All right, Lord, you could have been a week earlier. Why Why does God do that? He wants you to trust Him. He wants you to trust Him in everything. It's difficult to think of a more impossible situation than Peter sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, with two additional guards at the door, getting out of this jam. And yet in verse 7, what is Peter doing? He's, man, he's worried. He's got anxiety. He's sweating like, what's going to happen? No. What is he doing? He's asleep. He's He's dead as a doornail. He's not just sleeping a little bit. This guy is out. I mean, he is sleeping, sleeping. The angel comes and stands next to him, and he's still asleep. I don't know about you. When somebody comes and stands next to me in the middle of the night, I I wake up. My son Samuel, for the longest time, thought it was important to announce to me that he was going to the bathroom at 3 a.m. I don't need to know that. So I'd be sleeping in the bed, and, and then just like there's this weird sense that somebody's standing in front of me. There is. What do you need to do, son? I I think I need to use the bathroom. Go! And be quiet and don't tell me. But an angel from the heaven was not sufficient to wake Peter up. And, And when the angel comes into the room, unlike the last time that Peter was rescued from prison by an angel, light shines into the cell. Like he, the, the, the Greek means like the lights were on. It was bright in there. So an angel standing next to him, the cell is filled with light, and Peter is still knocked out cold. So the angel whacks him on the side and says, get up quickly. 
I want to make sure that we get this. Herod is carrying out what Peterson describes as a deliberate attempt to destroy the church by systematically removing its leadership, of which Peter is like the leader over the leaders, and guess what? He's asleep. He's cool. God's going to win. If if Jesus is raised from the dead, God's going to win. So why is Peter able to sleep? And can you sleep in the middle of your storm today? He's sleeping. Why? Because in part, this isn't Peter's first storm. You remember the Sea of Galilee? (laughs) You see, he knows he belongs to the one who was asleep on the boat in the storm. The one he had to go and wake up and the one who commanded even the wind and the waves to obey him. And he knows that live or die, if he belongs to the one who owns the winds and the waves, that the world surely isn't going to defeat him. And it's not going to defeat the church and it's not going to defeat the gospel. And that truth brings sleep-inducing peace when everything is on the line and the odds seem stacked against you. Jesus wins. And while Peter is sleeping... The church is doing their part, right? The church is praying. We read in verse 5, they're praying earnestly, wholeheartedly. What we read next is how God answers their prayers. Peter's chains, somehow they just fall off. He's still in a sleepy daze when the angel, and the angel gives him a clear and direct command, actually several of them, in verse 8. The commands in verse 8 remind me of what it was like talking to my kids when they were toddlers. Right? Get dressed, put your shoes on, grab your jacket, follow me, let's go. That's, I mean, it's like he's talking to a kid because Peter's like, what is going on? And what does Peter do? Unlike my, my kids in their toddler years, they, he, Peter just does it. He gets dressed, he puts his shoes on, he grabs his jacket, and he's out the door. And at this point, he thinks he's seeing another vision because he's already seen a vision, right, about, about food and the cleanliness of all people. Don't, don't call unclean what I call clean. And so he's had this vision that wasn't real. I mean, there was a real lesson, but there wasn't real food for him to eat. But now, like, this is real life. He's actually walking. But there's guards and inner gates how are they going to get out so they pass one guard apparently apparently in addition to peter being in a deep sleep god also put all everybody else in a deep sleep as well right so he goes past guard one at the inner gate guard two at the next inner gate and then they get to the iron gate that leads out into the city and it just opens up of its own accord all right let's go peter and the angel walk for one street which probably means in the Greek, approximately a block. And then, boom, what does the angel do? Leaves. The word means suddenly departs. The angel was there, and then the angel was gone. As soon as Peter can function without angelic intervention, there he goes. Peter comes to himself, and in verse 11 he says something pretty profound. He says, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. This is a remarkable statement for Peter to make because he's just been taught that God wants to bring Gentiles into the Jewish family and now he sees himself as a Jew escaping the Jewish expectation that he would die. 
he's starting to put it together. That God is making a people of every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. It's not about Judaism. It's about Jesus. As the Israelites had escaped the enslaving intent of Egypt under the cover of darkness, now Peter is escaping the enslaving purposes of many of his Jewish brothers under the cover of darkness as well. Peter runs free out of the prison. And when he realizes what the Lord has done, what does he do? He's like, well, that's cool, I'm free, I'm just going to keep that to myself, go get back to sleep. No, he, he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Now, we learn more about John Mark later in the New Testament. Uh, we learn, as Kellum says, of his association with Barnabas and Saul several, at several points throughout Acts and in Colossians and 2 Timothy and Philemon. We also learn in Peter that he's mentioned along with Silas as a companion of Peter on some of his travels. It is this John Mark who is most likely the writer of the Gospel of Mark on the basis of Peter's sermons and teachings. In any event, as the, pu- as the church is pushed out of the temple by the temple leadership, where is the church going to gather? Where is the church going to pray? They're going to do it in people's homes. And so people like Mary who is apparently a wealthy widow because her husband's not mentioned and it would have been his house if he was still living. So people like Mary step up and they host many believers in their homes. We know she's wealthy because her house has a a gate and she's got a servant. And so Peter's like, I know where they're going to be praying. They're going to be at Mary's house. And what does he want the church to know? Like you've been, what you've been praying for, it's happened. You've been praying that God would do something, he did something. So he, he goes by the house and he knocks at the outer gate to say that he's okay. And Rhoda, the servant, goes to answer, but she's so overjoyed, she doesn't open the door. I, I love this. The servant girl is a believer. You say, well, how do you know she's a believer? Because she's, she's overjoyed with the church. Right? So she's not just this throwaway person in the household. She's been brought into the family of faith, and she's got this joy, and she runs in to tell the other believers what's going on. And they tell her she's crazy. You've gone mad. Now what, what gets me about this whole interchange, this is one of the funniest scenes in the Bible. Right? <laughs> she's like, no, he's really out there. Like, At what point doesn't it occur to you, just go get him? No, it's his angel, right? So uh, built on presumably this belief of like perhaps a guardian angel in in some Jewish background, they believed that that your guardian angel might have a voice like you or might look like you. So they're having this debate about it's an angel. It's not really Peter, it's an angel. Regardless, why not go check it out? But anyway, I I love what verse 16 says. Peter continued knocking. So, I mean, you get this, right? This, this debate in the house, and there's Peter. I sent Ethan a gift this week. I said, I, I, I got Peter described in verse 16. There's just a guy that's just banging on the door. Come on! The church couldn't believe it. They were praying for it, but they couldn't believe it. I have a question for us in our personal lives and as a church today. Are we willing to pray prayers for the sake of the mission that would astound us if God answered them. 
Are we willing to pray prayers that would astound us if God chose to answer them? That take us to the very edge of faith. That take us up to the line of like, God, this is what I desire for your glory to see King Jesus magnified in the world. But man, it's going to take something that would be mind-blowing. Are we willing to have mind-blowing hopes and gospel dreams? Or are we just going to have trivial little thoughts and prayers? Well, I hope Grandma Bertha's toe feels better. Well, I hope the meal tastes good. What kind of prayers are we willing to pray at North Roanoke Baptist Church? Do we want to see our community transformed by the gospel? Do we want to see kids' lives rescued from the hell that they are being taught by their televisions and by some of their teachers and in universities? Do we want to intercept that before it's too late? Do we want to be a place in the valley that magnifies Christ no matter what it costs? Do we want to see God loosen our wallets and loosen our lips in speaking the gospel so that a generation from now or two generations from now or 20 generations from now, if the Lord tarries, that there's a people here that will greet on the other side and they'll give us a high five and say thank you for believing and for praying and for trusting and for giving like Jesus was going to win. Some of you, I'm not convinced, believe Jesus is going to win. Because your speech doesn't indicate that Jesus is going to win. Your giving doesn't indicate that you believe Jesus is going to win. You don't really believe that the kingdom is what lasts forever and that we ought to store up where moth and rust cannot destroy. You're more interested in the promotion or the job or the car or the bigger house or the bigger room. Do we believe this God is going to win? And if we do, we'll pray crazy prayers, we'll give crazy gifts, we'll do crazy things because our God wins. Do you believe our God wins? Verse 5 tells us they were earnestly praying. They, They were genuine in their faith and yet It's the night before Peter's supposed to die. And so you can imagine that the church by this point is praying in many directions, right? They're praying for Peter's release. They're praying for his endurance in the face of the fire. If he's not released, that he would not recant his faith, that he would even be martyred for the faith. They're praying for the health of the church. What's going to happen if Peter dies? What's going to happen to the church? What would God do? They're praying all these different things. And as the hours give way to days and the date of Peter's death draws near, we can imagine what they're feeling on the inside. And it's in that moment that God does more than they could ever ask or hope or imagine. To our graduates, if you live for the glory of Christ, he will always deliver. Always. It may not be in the way that you expect, but he will not disappoint and he will deliver. And while they are disputing whether or not it's Peter or his angel or this Rhoda has just lost her mind, Peter keeps on knocking. And somehow somebody finally goes to the door. They're amazed. And Peter gives them a, a hand signal to settle him down. To me, he looks like probably like a, a second grade teacher, you know. And then he gives them all the details of how the Lord delivered him from prison. And what happens next is a bit surprising. 
I think. Because the church has been praying, what? God, deliver Peter. Bring Peter back to us. We need Peter. What does Peter do? He leaves. And he begins to entrust the church to the next generation of leaders. He says, you tell James and the brothers what's going on, bring them up to speed, and then he leaves. Likely for the overall safety of the church, but Jerusalem will no longer be Peter's permanent residence for the rest of his life. He'll be more like a missionary, church planter, church encourager, church strengthener. For the rest of his life, he's operating outside of Jerusalem. Why? Because he understands that God's going to have to bring up a next generation to lead the church after the apostles. And he's handing off the baton even now. God delivers Peter. God proves his power to deliver, but then he still takes Peter away because the Lord had been preparing the church to survive and to advance the gospel after the apostles died. Peter starts the process of entrusting the future leadership of the Jerusalem church to elders who had been developing. In time, we go from instantaneous miracles of deliverance to longer-term manifestations of God's grace as he raises up teams of pastors who love Christ and love one another and sharpen one another and hold fast to God's Word and love the flock and hold each other accountable in spiritual warfare and fighting for unity and holiness and obedience and contending for the faith in a world that wants to enslave us. Don't, Don't miss that. The fact that we're here is still evidence of God's deliverance and His power down through the generations, that he still has people who want to stake their lives and give their lives to this mission and this calling. Between the death of James the Apostle and the rescue of Peter the Apostle, what have we learned? We've learned that God can and will do whatever it is necessary for the gospel to go forward in the world, that his purposes will prevail, that Jesus wins. So what does that mean for us? If you know Christ, if you're in Christ, you can rest and you can pray. You can trust Him even in times of trouble. Three applications this morning and then I'm done. First, if you don't know Christ, you don't have this hope. If you don't know Christ, the trouble of the world will take you out. Don't wait another day to turn from your sin and follow King Jesus who has conquered the grave and All who are in him, John tells us in 1 John 5, 4, have overcome the world. And then two applications for those who do know Christ. If you are a Christian, don't be surprised by trouble. Stop pretending that you are going to have a trouble-free, storm-free life. You're not. We're not as a church. There will be trouble, there will be trials, there will be storms, but Jesus wins. So just stop being surprised. And secondly, ask yourself this question. Does Jesus win? And if he does, rest and pray big prayers and live your life like he wins. Live or die, it's gain if you have Christ. If that's your confidence, I pray that as we stand and sing, you'll join me in rejoicing in that truth today. If that is not your confidence, 
Why not allow it to be your confidence today? Turn from sin and run toward Christ like never before. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you for these dear people and their attentive ears. God, thank you for the precious graduates that we have been blessed to know and to invest in. God, I pray that you would bless and keep them as they, as they go or as they stay in this community and in this valley. And God, don't let this moment pass. God, I pray you would search us, that you would ask us and test us, am I living, are we living like Jesus wins? Are we going all in for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel? And God, whatever you want to do in our lives this day, in our marriages, in our families, in our church, God, I pray you would unleash a move of God among us for the glory of Christ. In his name I pray it. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.